So this morning is Sunday. It is July 25th. You're going to turn uh, to the book of Judges this morning. Sure. Look at that. Come on. I think that brother must have had a word of knowledge. It helps he rode in the car with me all day yesterday. <laughs> okay, as we pick up our text this morning in Judges, I want to draw your attention to a couple of concepts that we need to deal with today. I'm going to de define some things, but this is not a Merriam-Webster's dictionary definition. This is how you should think of these words in relation to what we're talking about this morning. So if you will, this is kind of pastor's definition. If these don't come to you immediately, there's a section of your bulletin called the pastor's corner. We'll write these notes in the pastor's corner. It will help you. Your goal here today is not just to endure another sermon. Your goal is not to be mildly entertained for an hour or two hours or whatever it is. Your goal here today is to pick up something that will cause you to be more effective in your ministry, more effective in your life's goal of bringing glory to the king. Most people will attend church today hoping that their lives will be enriched in some way. I'm hoping that you will enrich the kingdom in some way. That's the point of our service. Our first definition and word here this morning is humanism. When I begin to speak to you about humanism today, I am talking about a cultural attitude or a philosophy that places your happiness as the ideal. So when I say humanism, what I mean is your best life now. What I mean is that your happiness is the goal of your faith. That's what I mean. When I speak to you about expediency, I'm talking about a tendency towards achieving our goals in the quickest and easiest manner. In other words, we're well aware that it is a 20-plus mile race, but you see a way in which you might find a more expedient route. The third thing that I'm going to talk to you this morning about is pragmatism. For our purposes today, you can think of pragmatism as an attitude of acceptance towards anything that seems to achieve the desired result. In other words, if it works, it's okay. Now, all three of these words have very good meat, good uh, associations. Humanism for the purpose of um, humanitarian works, good thing. I mean, when I see little kids hungry, I want to make them happy. I want to feed them, make them happy, right? Not little theologians. I just want to do something about their condition naturally and spiritually. When I think of expediency, I also always want to find the best, fastest, most efficient way to accomplish something. When I think of pragmatism, I do want to deal in the realm of things that work. Having said that, all three of these things have been manipulated in a way that is unhealthy. So in Judges 17, I think I have a text that will help bring this home, maybe make a difference in our lives. We're going to start in the first verse. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim, by the way, uh, this is not Micah, the minor prophet Micah. This, that would be the wrong time period. There's about six Micahs mentioned in the Bible. This guy's a standalone Micah, right? You thought there was only four Micahs mentioned in the Bible, huh? Four Micah? Yeah, that was spontaneous. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I have heard you utter a curse. I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver 
to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith. I'm curious. I don't want to stop here and preach, but how many shekels did we start with? 1,100. She said she was going to give it back to him. How many did we end up giving to a silversmith? 200. That's the Ananias and Sapphira kind of rate of exchange. And gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image of and the idol. Made them into the image and the idol. And they were put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. What's amazing about this story is that it doesn't deal with saviors. It doesn't deal with deliverers. It doesn't deal with national judges. It deals with the moral climate of their day. And it may even deal with the moral climate of our day. When mom experienced loss, what did she do? She uttered a curse. And then when mom experienced a good thing, what did she do? She uttered a blessing. Do you know anybody outside of the face you see in the mirror that is tempted to utter a curse when bad things happen? That only sees blessings in good things? You don't know anybody like that, do you? I saw one this morning as I was shaving. Mom and Micah both have a desire to worship God, but it is thoroughly mixed with an unrecognized contaminant, at least to them. The priest is from an improper tribe. The shrines are in improper places. The priestly garments are on men that are not priestly. And there are lots of idols. Leviticus 9.16, you're going to have to trust me on this one, speaks of a burnt offering that is brought, and it must be brought in a prescribed way. These people are worshiping God, but it is not the prescribed way. 1 Chronicles 15, 13, David is reflecting on why Uzzah was struck dead when he touched an ark, and he said, we did not inquire of God, and we did not do it in His prescribed way. How important is that? Everyone simply did during this time period as they saw fit. You know, American independence has made us uh, the envy of the world in many ways. American independence within Christianity has made us idolatrous because everyone simply does as they see fit. And what is right has become relative. And what is truth depends on what circle you're standing in. The gospel is not this way. I'd like to pick up then in the seventh verse. A, let's see. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. He's a Levite from Bethlehem. That's a pretty good calling, huh? It's in the house of God's bread. He's a Levite. Did Levites have to struggle to make their living? No. Oh, I know. They had to work to acquire lots of land, right? No, no. they had no inheritance in Israel. What's he doing leaving the place he's called wanderlust you know I'm called of God and there should be certain rights and privileges associated with that maybe this is what was in his mouth what an interesting thing on his way he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim well praise God a man of God has shown up maybe he will straighten this problem out 
Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said. I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest, and I will give you ten shekels of silver a year. Your clothes and your food. By the way, the title to this message is Shekels and Shirts. He's left his calling. He's left the place he was to minister. And what is he going to get in return? Shekels and shirts. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since the Levite has become my priest. It's bad enough that the people were inundated with a false religion, but now even a priest is participating. The environment of their day, and perhaps ours, is that of, perhaps God will be good to me. I have a Levite. This is humanism, and it's crept into the church to such extent that we say, if you don't want to go to hell, if you would like to go to heaven, come pray a prayer with me. This is a far cry from saying, if you want to identify with the sufferings of Jesus, if you're willing to have the flesh torn off your body, that you might stand with him, and by the way, he's considered a criminal by most, then come forward. Yeah. We have found a way to say, if maybe we can just have some religious stuff in our house, if maybe we can just be associated with some people that at one time were authentically associated with God, then, who knows, maybe God will do me good job, baby. The priest had a sincere calling, but was now shopping around his services for shekels and shirts. Why did Jesus send people out without a money bag, without a change of clothes? He was now an employee or a hireling who worked for shekels and shirts and food instead of God. Who installed the priest? Micah installed the priest. That means he's Micah's to control. He works for Micah. What can I say to the people today, Micah? Well, let's see. What would be good for me? I bet by the time he built a shrine, by the time he loaded it with idols, by the time he spent hundreds of shekels upon these things, I bet there was a certain pressure to maintain all of that wealth. And now he found a Levite who will say what he tells him to say who will do what he tells him to do. Micah's heart is revealed. He doesn't want a priest to tell him the truth. He doesn't want a priest who will bring searing conviction that changes his life. He just wants his best life right now. The gospel demands that you lose your life, that you might find it. And when we make the goal, the end, the means to get to that end... Lord, bless me. I'll serve you if you bless me. I'll give a hundred if I get back seven hundred. I will do this for you if you do that for me. Who are you that you think you can bargain with God? And where in the gospel does it say that the goal and plan of God is to bring about your personal happiness? The goal and plan of God is to glorify the name of Jesus. If you align your goals with His, that will make you happy. When we mix humanism, our happiness is the goal. With Christianity, we get people saved because they want good from the Lord, not good 
for the Lord. You find people very disappointed in Christianity when their life didn't turn out the way they envisioned it. You begin to see people walking around with frowns because their job's just not as much fun as they thought, and the Lord is making them unhappy. You begin to see people who are disappointed because they didn't have the football stadium-sized crowds that they thought they were called to preach to. When did we get so twisted up that we thought the goal in the kingdom of God was humanist in nature? See, this environment makes it so hard to consider what real success is. It says success is what makes you happy. And what makes us happy? Wealth, fame, popularity, pride. These are the order of the day. Drive up and down this road. Stop and survey the Christians. You'll see bumper stickers on Jaguars that say, I tithe. Really? Is that why you tithe? So God will give you something? Well, I hear if you give your life to the devil, he'll give you something too. Why don't you go serve him? Hmm. People aren't saved because they're morally bankrupt sinners. They just want to go to heaven. One of the things that I preached in Mexico was shocking. Shocking to me when I thought about it. I began to share about the woman in John 8 who stood naked before all of those people. Having been caught in the act probably covering, trying to hide, sure that stones were going to hit her any minute. And all of a sudden, in the moment that I was preaching that, I was the woman. I began to think how humiliating it must have been. I began to think of what the weight of condemnation was upon her. I began to think of what my life was like when I met Jesus. When you find yourself standing there in that situation, your prayer is not, I want to go to heaven. Prayer is, Lord, please change my life so that I can serve you. I've wasted it. I've destroyed it. Your happiness is not found in the next blessing from the Lord. Your happiness is found in every breath you get to take. Priests don't work for God anymore. They're installed by men to make us feel better about ourselves. Even among what some people would call remnant churches, if you want to call us that. I don't know how others associate the name, so I just call us a Christian church. But even among remnant churches that are preaching the truth, right? One man takes pride in his pastor over another. You see the same selfishness, the same appealing to greed. You see the same people whose emotional state is completely determined by their circumstances, and it is humanism. What is worse than just being humanistic, its end result is expedience. Whatever makes me happy, that's where I'm going to focus. One real problem with this kind of Christianity mixed with pagan humanism is that its so-called priests do whatever is expedient for them and the results are disastrous. You know, the man that commits adultery with a woman and then marries that woman. Don't you think every time she walks out of the house, he's got to kind of scratch his head and remember how he met her? Well, what happens when you meet a priest that will tell you what you want for money? What happens with that very same priest if he gets a better deal? Oh, they are called to a bigger church. That's what happens. Turn with me to Judges 18. I'm going to read to you the first six verses. 
You guys are fast. How about that? You can glance from the left side of your page to the right side of your page. If we were Hebrews, we'd have to do that backwards. Of course, it's only backwards from our perspective. I think God would say it's the right way. We are the ones backwards. In those days, Israel had no king. Could we say that enough? And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into the inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In other words, the Danites have not fought for and obtained what God said they should have. So now they're kind of meandering around looking for the best deal for them. It's too hard to do what God's called me to. So let me see if I can go get a little better deal. Sounds a little bit like that young Levite, huh? So the Danites sent five warriors from Zorah and Eshtal to spy out the land and explore it. (laughs) The only spying out land that was supposed to occur was before they entered the promised land. Now they're spying out what God has already said was theirs. They didn't like it, so they went somewhere else to spy it out. These men represented all their clans. They told them, go explore the land. The men entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, Who brought you here? Where, what are you doing in this place? Why are you here? Who called you, man? How did you get into this position? He told them what Micah had done for him and said, He hired me, and I am his priest. Mm. <laughs> hey, brother, you've been pastoring that church a while. How'd that come to be? Well, when I got out of seminary, I knew a friend, and the friend told me about an opening. And I interviewed for the opening, and they hired me. What happens when we choose men based on their academic prowess, their scholastic achievement, their ability to have rote memorization without regard to their character? What happens when we have hirelings as pastors rather than men who grew up in your midst who served God alongside you, and you begin to see the function in their life was to help prepare you for service. You tell me who appoints pastors. Ephesians 4 says that apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists are appointed by Jesus. And yet when a young person gets fired up, when they begin to get excited, if they're a girl, we go, oh God, what do we do with them? They can't minister in the pulpit, although I think you can. And they go, I know what we'll do. We'll send the girls to Mexico as a missionary. Well, thank God the Lutherans, the Baptists, and the Methodists did that because I just saw them all get spirit-filled this weekend. Then when you're a guy, they go, oh, what do we do with you? I know what we'll do with you. We'll cause you to come help build bigger shrines. You'll work for us for shekels and shirts. You'll tow the party line and to make sure, we're going to make sure you're thoroughly indoctrinated in our cemetery. He hired me. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. What a pivotal question. What did these men set out to do? They set out to go conquer somewhere. Are you going to be successful? Tell tell me, Levi. Are are you going to be successful? Are we going to be successful? Well, the poor Levi, what is he? He's a hireling. He works for money. He's a descendant of Levi. He can trace his ancestry all the way back to Aaron. He comes from a biblical city. He was working in a biblical way. But at this point in his life, he has been reduced to a man who works 
for money. Shackles and shirts. So what do you think he'll do? Will he remain loyal to the house of Micah? Will he go and continue to minister in the house of the shrine that he helped to perpetuate? Or will he simply prophesy success for the coming conqueror because they have greater strength in numbers? Wow. When you went out into the desert, what did you expect to see in John the Baptist? A reed swayed by every wind? In Jewish literature, the reed is a survivor. The reed is a little bit like a cockroach. The reed is somebody who will sway, sway in the wind in every direction and never breaks. The oak is large and majestic, beautiful, founded on righteousness, and it refuses to bend, so sometimes it breaks. The reason Jesus used that parable, the reason I share it with you now, is to tell you expediency, swaying to stay alive, whatever's the quickest way to the immediate goal, may make you a hero in the world's eyes. But you want to be a hero in Jesus' eyes? Be willing to give your life for what is right. Oh, so easy to say amen. But will you even give your time for what's right? Will you give your money for what is right? Or do you protect those things in the same way that you protect your very life? It's not yours anymore. We are not hirelings. We are not Levites paid to prophesy. Then they said to him, please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. i got to tell you the truth. When I began to read this, I didn't remember this story very well. It's crammed right between Samson and the Levite and his concubine, which are big, big stories in the Bible. One that you love to preach about, one you hope no new believer ever asks you about. And so this one I kind of overlooked. And when I got here, I was like, what's he going to say? And before I could read the next line, I knew what he was going to say because I've met these hirelings. They tried to buy me one time too. Then they said to him, please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. I bet it does. I bet it does. Why did this Levite leave Bethlehem? Wonderlust. Why is he about to betray Micah and move on? He found a better deal. What did Jesus say about the hireling? He sees the wolf approaching and cares nothing for the sheep. Boy, there was a time here about a year ago where I was overcome with visions, with prophecies, with an immediate sense that the Lord was telling us to tune up, that there would be problems that would come upon our land, and the words of the hirelings would not sustain them, and the people would be so disillusioned with Jesus and so upset because of what the hirelings had said that they would be begging for truth. I haven't known quite what to do with that, but I know surely that the Lord said it to me. I know now that my responsibility is first to this flock, to tell you we cannot serve God for shekels and shirts and as much as I can focus on a hireling here what are we if we serve God for blessings what are we if we're only happy when he does good for us what are we pick up with me in the 14th verse then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their brothers do you know that one of these houses has an ephod? Other household gods? A carved image and a cast idol? Now you know what to do. <laughs> yeah, you should probably go get rid of those things, right? Yeah. No. 
they have seen success and the pragmatism in them says if it worked for them maybe we should try it never mind whether the church that is giant is two inches deep if it worked for them maybe we should try it Never mind that they're worldly. Never mind that every time you get a report, one's sleeping with another one. Never mind that. It worked for them. And what are we saying worked for them? Their CEO pastor built a bigger building. Wow. And how did he do it? By expediency. Whatever's the quickest, shortest route. Tell the people whatever you can get away with telling them to cause them to tithe and keep coming. Or like one pastor bragged to me, oh, they don't come here anymore, but they still tithe. I wanted to vomit. If he hadn't been such a close friend, I probably would have vomited on him. So they turned there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites armed for battle stood at the entrance to the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the carved image, the ephod and the other household gods and the cast idol, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance to the gate. When these men went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod and the other household gods and the cast idol, the priest said to them, what are you doing? You almost have hope for him at this moment. Hey, dude, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're stealing here. You're stealing something and it's... Mind you, quite, quite the, uh, the cost. I mean, nobody wanted to go all the way to Jerusalem, so Micah just built them a little convenience store Christianity with drive-up healing. Maybe it had some television ministry involved, so you never had to get out of the comforts of your own bedroom. And now they're going to steal it. I heard Jimmy Swagger tell a testimony that made me cry. And by the way, I am not in the crowd that throws stones at Jimmy Swagger. He's been preaching the gospel longer than most people that have been alive. And he's failed greatly and been publicly humiliated in every regard, but the man is no failure because he continues to trust Jesus. I love him. I don't know of any modern figure that's endured more scorn and shame for things that people do on the Internet every day in the privacy of their pastor's offices and still love Jesus. So I throw no stones at Jimmy Swagger. I heard him relate a story. And as he began to relate the story, he said that there were certain people that fought over his mailing list. There were ministers who did everything they could to get his contacts of his donors because they thought his ministry was done and now they wanted I mean it's just pragmatism they wanted what worked for him he said he thought they were his friends and they were there to restore him but what they really wanted was his mailing list you ever been hurt in ministry you ever didn't know where to turn can you imagine that the vultures that are around you only want whatever your shiny objects are that drew people American Christianity. Maybe we need a Jewish Christianity. Maybe we need to return to our Hebraic roots. Maybe we need to look at the days when, when people got born again, they brought everything and laid it at the apostles' feet because their lives didn't belong to them anymore. Maybe we need to look less at our happiness and comfort and more at sacrifice 
for the king. Maybe it's time not to have a revolution, not to simply rebel for the sake of rebelling, but to have a personal revolution where you turn your concepts of who Jesus is and who that makes you upside down and re-examine them. Maybe you got saved in a bless me club, but now God is calling you to something more. When these men went into Micah's house, the priest says, what are you doing? Verse 19, they answered him, be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Because everybody wants a father and priest that they can command what to say and what not to say, don't they? Well, see, you just don't understand. We're assemblies of God. We don't do that here. See, you just don't understand. We're Lutheran. We don't do that here. Tell me, is Christ divided? Paul, Cephas, Apollos, any of them crucified for you? Who gives them the right to say what you can and cannot say if it's found in the Word? You know what gives them the right? They give you your shekels and shirts. I stood with ministers this weekend that are grappling with a very difficult question. We now know that the party line we're towing is a crock. We know it to the point that all of our people are still lost and when they encounter the real thing, they get saved and leave. But what do I do about my shekels and shirts? Because if I tell people what I now know, if I make a ruckus, I will lose my shekels and shirts. Friends, I would rather be naked walking the streets of Sugarland and doing God's will than to be the finest dressed preacher here and know in my heart at night that I was a liar. But they don't say that, do they? They simply say what these men say. Listen to this. They answered, be quiet, don't say a word, come with us. Be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve the tribe and clan in Israel as a priest rather than just one man's household? I want you to hear the rationalization. Eric, if you do what you're going to do, man, you're only going to reach a few people. I mean, the very best you'll ever have is maybe fill a living room. If you go the route we go... You can fill a gymnasium. Won't you reach more people for Jesus that way? Don't act like you've never heard it. It's going on all around us. Rather than appalled, the priest is glad. Read the next line. He is glad. You know why? He compromised a long time ago. The day he walked out of Bethlehem, he had already compromised. He sold his soul for shekels and shirts. I wish I didn't know anybody that had done it. But every time we serve God, only when there's a blessing in it for us, it's shekels and shirts. Then the priest was glad. He took the ephod, the other household gods, and the carved image and went along with their people. Do you notice how easy he makes this transition? How effortlessly he goes from one place to another. When I was a young man still lost in the church, but watching the church leaders, somebody came who was edgy, who was fired up and I was excited. It was mostly the strength of man and I can see that now, but at least he had a personality. He came to us from a smaller church. We were a larger church. But after only a few years, he left for yet a larger church in a prettier state. Is this the calling of God or is this the ringing of shekels and shirts in your ears? Where is this word? Why don't you hear this preached? I heard one man cover this subject, and it was in the 50s. I heard a recording of it. I haven't heard anybody else cover it at any time since. It's like there's a fraternity 
a fraternity of losers that have sold out for shekels and shirts. And they are heroes. Jason Upton calls them powerful weaklings. They're powerful in everyone's eyes except God's because they serve Him for shekels and shirts. What do you do? Why are you in the kingdom? Will you give your life for His glory even if it's done a few minutes at a time? Or do you only serve Him so you can get raptured? Or so you can go to heaven? Or so that you can have your best life now and feel like a champion? Wow. Isn't that a heavy word? I had to re-examine my salvation. I had to look and think about this and go, that's right. You first showed me how morally bankrupt, how depraved I was. And my salvation prayer was, Lord, change me. Not Jesus, I want to go to heaven. That's really not much better than eating the Catholic's cracker and receiving Jesus. It's really not. To say, here, come intellectually say, uh-huh, at these three points, and you go to heaven with Jesus. Let's be honest. Who doesn't want the lottery? <laughs> Maybe this is why we see all around us what we see all around us. But are you participating in it in it in a personal way? When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together. I'm sorry, I meant to read verse 21. Putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. Uh, did you hear that? Who was out front? What was this? A war campaign. So it's a war campaign, and let's see, what do we need? If we're playing Settlers of Catan, if we're playing Sim City, I'm trying to relate to anybody under like 40 now. Uh, if you're doing this, and you're going to war, what do you need? Well, let's see, let's pick up a priest on the way. Uh, what else might we need? Oh, let's get some women and kids out front. But see, the hirelings, they have never really cared about people's lives. Remember it? They're in it for their happiness. They're in it for what's expedient. They'll do whatever works. And if it works to sacrifice women and children to the gods of this world to keep their jobs and their retirements, they do it. And after all, the devil allows it to be so subtle that everybody thinks they're good men. I tell you, I'd rather you sell drugs to my children than lie to them about Jesus. Yeah. At least drugs they can recover from. Amen. Accepting lies about Jesus will send them to hell. Hmm. Let's just toe the party line. By the way, since I don't have time to teach this section of this, if you finish this chapter, you're going to find out something. This city, Laish, becomes Dan. Dan becomes the capital of Samaria hundreds of years from this time. Dan is the city where they set up their goat gods and a civil war breaks out between the house of Jeroboam and the house of Rehoboam, the house of David. And there's a civil war that lasts until Israel is destroyed and has to be rebuilt and they become Samaritans. And where did it start? With a Levite with wanderlust and a people contaminated with the pollution of this world that didn't know any better. They just wanted God to bless them. This kind of make them happy. Get to the good stuff quickly. If it works, do it. Christianity is really no better than Samaritan idolatry. We always seem to be looking for a newer, better scheme to draw people for our own enrichment. And we usually use their enrichment as the carrot to draw them. 
When is the last time you heard a Pauline-like conversion story? Come unto me and I will show you what you must suffer for my name. Oh, that didn't fill the house? That didn't get the offering boxes full? Come unto me and I will make you rich. That seems to be the gospel of our day. Come unto me and you'll be blessed. No suffering ever. You'll go straight to heaven. Why? Because you're American. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? It's funny because it's so sad. But if you meditate on it for a moment, it will crush you because it is true. We have priests who pronounce the Lord's approval to whoever gives them the most money. We have learned to reason our actions that we would have thought is evil to be okay because it's benefiting more people. In the end, have you ever considered what happened to Micah's family? Now, what happened when the warriors come through? What happens when all of his wealth is stripped away? See, nobody ever gets to see the product of the hireling because when their families are divorced, when their children are strung out on drugs, when it has not worked out to be their best life now, the church just kind of shoves them into another group and hopes they go somewhere else. And they end up in a little remnant church that hopefully somebody's putting their lives back together. We are the church that other people run away to go see, like a mistress. They love us, but in public they want to be seen in the big fancy churches. Friends, Jesus was a lot like that, and so Pharisees came to him at night. But I tell you, if you don't want all of him, whatever the cost, you got saved under a sham. If your goal for serving God is that he makes you happy today, you didn't experience real salvation. Turn with me to 2 Kings 16. You're going to put up with me a few more minutes? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's well, how long the flight lasts, so I don't know how you'll get off. <laughs> Tell me when you're in 2 Kings 16. Yeah. I don't know what to read you from this because I don't know how familiar you are with it. But I'm going to read enough to where I think it makes sense and we'll go from there. Let's pick up in verse 7. 2 Kings 16, verse 7. Ahaz sent messengers to say, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. So we have a southern king, a king Ahaz, king of Judah, and he is being attacked by Aram and he's being attacked by the northern kingdom of Israel. And what does he do? He calls out to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and says, Come save me. If Assyria can save us from Amram, we will serve them and do it right alongside Jesus. This is every Christian that has ever been in a position where it looked like things were just not working out for you in the kingdom and you resorted to some worldly means for deliverance. It is absolutely no different. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. Have you ever been short one month, didn't know what you were going to do, so you used your tithe to cover something else? No different than Ahaz sending his money to Tiglath-Pileser. I'm not here to beat you down about money. We don't even pass a plate. What I want you to understand 
is that these compromises are not just in some other church in some other place. They exist in our lives. Let's get off a tithe for a moment. When you feel a grumbling in your heart that you need to meet the need of someone because Jesus wants to do it, and your thought is, but what about me? When God shows up and says, you know what, I have something special for you, but you're worried about what it costs you. When you're called to ministry, but you do not want to sacrifice to get there. This is no different than Ahaz sending what belongs to the Lord to an Assyrian king. No different. None. But today, because expedience is the order of the day, if a young man shows potential, make him a youth pastor. It'll be a stepping stone to being a pastor. Don't worry about whether or not he has the character to handle it. Somebody is talented in music, throw him on a stage to lead worship. We'll simply boil it down to actually covering words of songs and not flowing in the Spirit, so it won't matter anyway. And if he doesn't have the character to handle the praise, so what? We'll find another one if he falls away. You know what the number one problem in the church that I grew up in was with youth pastors? They slept with the little girls in the youth group. Oh, that must have been some horrible denomination. It's the largest denomination in the United States. So when I got married and I was in love with Jesus, guess what they approached me about? Being a youth pastor. I figure it's less likely that you'll do unholy things then. How sad. How sad. But this is what happens when you roll the world right into the church. It's what happens when you forget about who Jesus is and simply think about a means to an end. He sends his money there. Look at verse 10. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar. This guy has got the temple of the living God. He has an altar to God. But he saw something in Damascus that he just kind of fancied, you know. This happens every day when some ridiculous worldly marketing principle makes it into the church and it's called gospel. When emotional ploys and the right music and sound and lights are what draws people to an altar. Man, at some point you need to consider what kind of fish you catch with the bait that you're using. Right? If you can't eat them, do you really want them? Does it really do any good to catch mullet all day long? John and Joy will eat mullet, but the rest of us won't. <laughs> Does it really do any good? If what you need is, a, is something dedicated to a temple in Damascus to draw your people to the Lord, is it really worth it? I think I'd rather stick with the handful that want to hang around the mercy seat. <laughs> he says the most interesting thing. Look at verse 15. King Ahaz gave these orders to Uriah the priest on the large, new, new and improved, 1999 Germans made good stuff, buy it right now, altar. <laughs> Offer the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering. The king's burnt offering and his grain offering and the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering. Sprinkle on the altar all the blood of the burnt offerings and sacrifices, but... I will use the bronze altar, that one was God's, for seeking guidance. The church has become so diseased that we think we can have a shrine in our backyard, a Levite in our pocket, and still hear from God. 
Friends, when you serve him for shekels and shirts and you do whatever it takes to maintain that, even if it's bringing in foreign altars, even if it is bringing in marketing schemes, even if it is using worldly ridiculous people who are appealing to masculinity, turn phone books and whatever it may be, to reach them, you need to consider what it is you're getting. If the lost people want to buy the book, it might not have come from God. There was a prayer of somebody or something or another not all that long ago. Man, we had a prayer. We'll just call it what it is. We had a prayer of Jabez. We had a prayer of Jabez for kids. We had a prayer of Jabez for women. We had a prayer of Jabez for everybody. Funny thing, I was still in the business world at that time, and when I went into most offices, guess what I saw? The most ungodly people had that in their office. I wonder why. It was humanism. Bless me. Make me happy now. Enlarge me. Say, so how could the Bible be humanism? Because if you cherry pick your selection and remove it from the cross of Christ, if you take out of it the suffering and only put into it the result of the glory of suffering, if you only show them the end and do not show them the means by which you get there, you have created a false religion. And people flock to it. You don't believe me? Then why do all of the surveys say that 80% of our nation thinks they're a Christian, but 50% are divorced multiple times? A growing number of them to the tune of millions are murdering their babies. You tell me when you see the fruit on the tree, is 80% of our nation a Christian? Then they must have accepted something other than the authentic thing. Maybe they were concerned with what made them happy. I was told to seek first the kingdom and then everything I needed would be added. He goes on to where he removes more and more from the temple of God. You can read about it in the next paragraph. The 18th verse says it. So he removes more and more out of deference to the king of Assyria. In other words, you know, Kelsey, every time you read that Bible, it, it, it makes Steve feel so from now on, we're just going to put some, some scriptures on the screen. We don't even have to put the references. Every time, Matthew, you sing that song about the blood, you know, the old ladies get squeamish. So, look, from now on, only bright up happy songs. You know, we just want to be seeker sensitive because we'll reach more people that way. If I'm stepping on your toes, I hope so. I'd hit them with a hammer if I had a chance. <laughs> How seeker-sensitive do you need to be when somebody has a gut-wrenching revelation of who they are outside of Jesus? How palatable do you need to make him to them? But if you just want to draw a large crowd and call it success, well, then you might as well just give away gift certificates and hot dogs. Maybe you get some Mormons and Jehovah's Witness in there too. What passes for Christianity in your book? If we see the world develop a cheap marketing scheme, a new altar, will we use it because it works? In all of our dualism, we don't even realize that we show more deference for the world, more concern for what the world thinks than what Jesus thinks. Friends, we're being called today to leave the tide of pollution that has risen in our churches. Aaron gave the people something to worship while Moses was on the mountain, and our pastors allowed the same idolatry in the form of hero worship in the form of reverence for talents. And they do it every day. But we must say no. 
The rich young ruler held on to what made him happy instead of sacrificing for God's glory. He said, how do I go to heaven? What must I do to inherit eternal life? But when he heard how you get there, he simply said, no, and walked away sad. Our pastors have traded the same security against the glory of God to maintain their happiness and comfort. But we must say no. I won't trade it for a bowl of beans. I won't trade it for shekels and a shirt. I would rather have no money bag, no purse, and go about preaching the kingdom of God and Him providing for me than to be a sellout who cannot say what God says to say. You think you're being radical because whoo, one day you mentioned to say it in a parking lot somewhere. God called us to proclaim the full message. And when we don't do it, people die. And their children go to hell. And they stay hooked on things that are killing them every day. The end of Micah's household was destruction. And the priest could have made a difference, but instead he accepted shekels and shirts. Simon the sorcerer said, it doesn't matter how I get it. In the end, I will just get it. And our pastors have tried to buy their way into the anointing in the very same way. What kind of sound system does that church have? Maybe if we can hire their worship leader. They shop for talent daily. Pragmatism. If it works, it must be right. But we must say no. Turn with me to Psalm 37. This would be verse 23. I'm going to read this out of the Amplified Bible. I love the NIV, I love the Net Bible, I love the New King James, I, I love them all. Nobody is uh, any better than the actual Hebrew. And in this particular instance, I like the way that this translation worked. So here comes verse 23 in the Amplified. The steps of a good man are directed and established by the Lord when he delights in his way and he busies himself with every step. If you believe that your steps are ordered by God, that should make a difference. How successful was Noah? Well, he's a pretty good shipbuilder. But as a preacher, how successful was Noah? If the whole world goes to hell under your watch and only your closest family members are saved, would the church call him a success? But he saved the world. Whose eyes do you want to be a success in? How successful was Jeremiah? The church world of his day threw him into a pit. They didn't listen to him at all. And every devastation he prophesied came about. How successful was he? But he completed the task God gave him. How about John the Baptist? How successful was he? He died in a lonely prison doubting whether or not the message he had taught was true. How successful was he? Are you in this for the glory of men and what they see your life as a success? Are you in this for the glory of God? Because every man I just mentioned was denied the glory of man, but achieved the glories of God. If your footsteps are ordered, prison is no longer a tragedy, it is a ministry. Paul wrote letters about joy. You go read the first chapter of Philippians. He talks about joy being complete, joy being full, overflowing in joy. And he wrote it from a prison cell as he did the book of Philemon's and the book of Colossians. What would happen if he just wanted his best life now? <laughs> Come on, saints. 
When bad things happen, is it an opportunity? You like Micah's mama? You utter curses? But if you find the silver you lost, you utter blessings? Is your joy dependent upon the circumstances around you? Have you bought into a humanist view of Christianity that says, the end of all is my happiness? Or are you willing to suffer with a smile on your face because it achieves glory for God? Isn't that worth thinking about? Prison letters from Paul. How about a shipwreck? A shipwreck certainly should ruin your day. A shipwreck should destroy your disposition. Paul simply saw it as an opportunity to minister on Miletus. Well, a snake bite. That could file things up, huh? Now I saw it as an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. What did you sign up for? Did you sign up for the opportunity to give your life away that God might have glory? Or did you want your best life now? Did you get saved to go to heaven? Or did you get changed? Did you get saved to be changed from a miserable sinner into a man that lives for God's glory? It's an interesting thing. I was ministering with two other people closely this weekend. All three of us have got that message. None of the three of us would be considered successful by a worldly standpoint. And all three of us were saved in our own bedrooms. And all three of us were saved because we came to a gut-wrenching conclusion that our lives were just a continuation of the same old disease stock. Never occurred to any of the three of us that we simply would have a better life. And yet all of us are happy. And all of us do have blessed lives. That was the result. That was not the goal. Why do you serve him? Has your happiness become more important than his holiness? As a quote from Kelsey Dime. I loved it. Amazing. Is your happiness more important than God's holiness? How about this one? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Who remembers what that is? Where did it come from? It comes from Jesus on the cross. When the weight of the world fell upon him, when the sin of all mankind fell upon him, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What I want you to know is this is the cry of a sinner. This is the cry of a person who is still laboring under the guilt of their sin that when bad things happen, they say, God, why have you forsaken me? Because the man who has been set free from death the man who got out of the grave later would look at every circumstance and say, I have overcome the world. I deserve death like the harlot in front of the stoners. But I got another breath. Every breath you draw ought to bring a measure of God's spirit and happiness into your life. It cannot be dependent upon whether you have a new dishwasher, whether you got your pedicure. It cannot be dependent upon whether you like your boss. It cannot be dependent upon whether or not you are valued. The church has become such a bunch of panty-waist Christians. You can't even talk to them like men anymore. Now we talk in the terms of psychologists. We use the voice of televangelists. Brother, I love you. I don't want you to love me. Stay away from me and my kids. Yeah. But you know what? It's true. Because there's idols in the house. There's idols in the house and the Levites are working for shekels and shirts. What do you do about it? I have a verse for you. The cry of a sinner is Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. As much as Jesus represented the perfect 
righteous man, when sin fell upon him, he cries the utterance of a sinner. It's no longer Father, but now it's God. It is no longer victory and righteousness. It is, why have you done this to me? This is the cry of a sinner. What does the cry of your life say? Here comes the cry of a saint. It comes from 1 Peter 1. It will be 8 and 9. The cry of a believer. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, i.e. in your situation, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What is the cry of your life? Is it only when God blesses you, you're happy? Are you a humanist Christian? Or are you happy because you are receiving the salvation of your souls? The very best witness of whether or not a person is a believer is what do they look like when everything has gone wrong? The darkest period in my life was in a place called Lafayette. Fell on the floor of my little bitty den. Began to cry out to him. I no longer wanted ministry. I no longer wanted blessings. I just was in a crushed place in my life where I hoped to stay with him. That turned out to be the most fruitful thing that ever happened to me. And then he began to add to me students and people. You heard Yvette preach here last time we got together. Was that Wednesday? He began to add to me students and said, give them this message. It is born out of our weakness. Randy Wakefield says, if you want to grow hot jalapenos, you plant them, you give them plenty of water, and then you let them suffer drought. And then you give them plenty of water, and then you let them suffer drought. And then you give them plenty of water, and you let them suffer drought. That process produces the very best jalapenos. Kelsey was studying about a nursery. If you want your nursery to go really well, you cannot give it all the fertilizer, all the nitrates, everything that it needs all of the time. It must strive. It must struggle. Otherwise, it grows all leaves and no fruit. You are the same way. And God has enabled you to endure suffering, to endure trials, to endure difficulties, and maintain joy because you are filled with an inexpressible joy, the salvation of your souls. So your pastor has treated you badly. So you got bounced from a place that Jesus gets bounced from. So people around you don't see in you what Jesus sees in you. What do you think it would have been like to write letters from prison? Are you in this for your comfort, your happiness, or for his glory? I have one last story for you, and this is a story. It comes from a man named Paris Reedhead. I don't know why all good preachers have funny names. Maybe I should go by E.S. Stevens. <laughs> if I thought it would improve my life, I would. E.S. Stevens, coming to you today from... <laughs> blah, 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 MSRP. <laughs> Paris Reedhead shares this story. I have long been fascinated with a group of people called the Moravians. I don't think it could be said any better than this. I bet you've never heard of either. Two young Moravians heard of an island in the West Indies where an atheist British owner had 2,000 to 3,000 slaves. 
And the owner said, no preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this island. Even if there was a shipwreck that brought one here, I would go and separate them house by house until nobody had any discussion of that kind of nonsense. 3,000 slaves from the jungles of Africa had been brought to this island in the Atlantic and they were going to live and die without ever having heard about Jesus. In the late 1700s, the, a British planter owned an entire island in the same West Indies chain. It's off the coast of South America. Several thousand slaves had toiled there. Sugarcane fields under a burning sun were their daily regiment. The atheist planter vowed, no missionary will come here. These 3,000 slaves were doomed to die. When these Moravians heard about it, the community at Heron Hut came to see two lads who wanted to go do something about this, but they had no means to get there. So these two young German Moravians sold themselves to the British planter as slaves. They got no more money for themselves because they were educated. They got no more money for themselves because they were white. They got no more money than for a common slave because that's what they were being bought as. They used their price for their lives as ship fare to the islands. This man, even though he was purchasing slaves to come work in his plantation would not even pay for their transportation. So understand the absurdity of this. They offered their lives as slaves and were paid and then had to use that money to transport them on the slave ship that now owned them to the place they were going to minister to slaves. Your best life now. Family members were emotional. Their brothers were going into a lifetime of slavery. There was weeping. There was crying. There was question, was this extreme sacrifice wise? Was it necessary? As the ship sailed away and the gap between the people on the shore and the people on the ship widened, they linked arms and raised their hands. They shouted across that spreading expanse. And the lads answered, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. See, they had a grasp of something. Jesus paid for me to do this already. My life is not my own. It's not about my happiness. It's about his advancement. May the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. Those were the very first two German Moravian missionaries. There was less than 300 people in their colony when these two men did that. But in the coming hundred years, they sent hundreds of missionaries around the world under the same cry. May the Lamb receive the reward of His suffering. What does your life say? Does it say, I get mine? Does it say, may the Lamb receive the reward of His suffering? You know, I don't even know how the story ends. I can't find it. I'd like to say all 3,000 got saved, but somehow... I doubt it. Because God gets glory through what his people endure in obedience. It shows that he's God. I want to worship for a minute. I'm only asking one thing of you. I'm not trying to get your shekels and shirts. I'm not trying to fill this room with more people. Nobody preaches like this trying to get more people in their building. 
want your life to be adjusted to bring glory to God no matter what it costs you. No matter what the cost. I don't respect your academic achievements. I don't reject, I don't, I don't accept your scholastic prowess. But any of you that will suffer for the gospel, I will revere you like Jesus himself. And it starts in what you do every day, not just the day the slave ship shows up. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Boy, is that a prayer people can say amen to? We'll find out in all of our lives tomorrow when you encounter difficulty. There is no tragedy for the man whose steps are ordered by God. There is only opportunity. Every difficult thing that comes your way, you can greet with a smile, with a confidence, with inexpressible joy. The Lamb is receiving the reward of his suffering. Every tongue lashing from your pagan boss, every financial hardship that you endure with a smile, the Lamb is receiving the reward of his suffering. I am not a humanist Christian. I don't believe in pragmatism. I'm not looking for the most expedient route. I'm looking for one thing. Suffering that yields glory for him. Amen. Let's worship. Stand on your feet. You can file out anytime you want. We're we're closed. <coughs> kind of.